Ernest Stepanek is an assistant professor of Slavic languages and literatures at the University of Virginia. He received his MA and PhD from the same institution. To date, he has published three textbooks that have been released in recent editions. These are Dracula or the Timeless Path of the Vampire, Russian and East European film, and Russian folklore. In addition to such publications, Professor Stepanik has been very active in the public sphere, giving a variety of presentations, primarily concerning the vampire, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Professor Stepanik, welcome to Eurotrash. Hi, thanks a lot. Nice meeting you. <laughs> I'm super excited about this conversation. Oh. You don't even know. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I mean, I'm from Eastern Europe, yeah, so uh, I think yeah. it goes with yeah. the territory. It seems that vampires cannot die in more ways than just one. It's not just that every generation gets his own definitive vampire. These days, it sometimes seems that like a third of pop culture rests on the shoulders of this one poor creature. It's gotten so far that we don't just have scary vampires anymore either. There's sexy vampires, there's superhero vampires, mm, yeah. there's romantic vampires, there's even silly, stupid vampires. What is it about an undead humanoid that scurries at night drinking blood that makes us so perpetually fascinated? Now, first off, I guess I should start by saying we actually don't know how old the vampire is. The earliest reference we have to the vampire being written down is an old Russian text from 1047 AD. And there the word that is used is upir, which you have in Russian and you still have it in Polish. It is a so sounds slightly different. That's the oldest word we know of for this thing we call the vampire today, but that doesn't mean, of course, that was the year when it originated. One time I did a, can I say this? <laughs> One time I did a video for TED Ed, and they have a, they have another video up about the vampire epidemic in Eastern Europe, you know, especially Serbian epidemic in 18th century. And they're like, yeah, so we have this video up, and uh, this is this is the time period when the vampire started. I was like, Dad, you're, you're at least 700 years off, actually. <laughs> So, so sorry, a vampire epidemic. What does that mean? So um, there have been a number of these throughout history. The most well-known one, they usually refer to it as the, the the great vampire epidemic of the 18th century. But basically, a vampire epidemic is when vampire hysteria would spread through parts of Eastern Europe, and people would start digging up lots of bodies to you know find signs of vampirism, and then do what's called a vampire burial, which is you know you do something to the corpse, chop off its head, cover it in garlic or something like that to make sure that the vampire attacks stop. And they 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 all relate to disease epidemics is what they relate to. So, you know, the biggest one was 18th century, starting right around 1725. But we have one from 1349 in Serbia that's pretty well known and stuff like that. So that's what a vampire epidemic is. like Kind of like a witch craze, like hysteria spreading about vampires and people actually thinking they're real and, you know, doing various things. At any rate, so... So as I was saying, first off, the vampire is quite old. We don't know how old. The oldest we know of, it's, it's, it's at least 1047 AD old. But so you have this idea in Slavic belief of this thing that comes back from the grave, which in most cases is a reanimated corpse. doesn't have to be, but usually that's what it is. That's usually what you find in folklore. And, um, and then over time, what happened to you know, just make this as brief as possible, and you can you know, ask questions as you feel the need, is once the... The great vampire epidemic happens in the 18th century. That is really where the vampire as an idea starts to enter Western Europe, primarily at first by way of German. That's where they get the word der Vampir. This is where it first enters German language around 1726, coinciding with the start of the great vampire epidemic because soldiers who were, you know, German, Austrian, and Prussian and stuff like that, they were, ser they were serving in Serbia to fight against the Turks, the Ottoman Turks. And 
when they were there, they were seeing, you know, people, you know, Serbian peasants and stuff, committing vampire burials and chopping off heads of corpses and burning them and stuff. And they were like, what are you, what are you doing? And they said, oh, we did, it's a vampire. What do you mean? <laughs> they're like, what's a vampire? You know, when they started to explain it, these people then brought the stories back and you know, they come back home. They're like, you got to hear about this. Oh my God. And so once they start talking about it, it becomes this big thing in academia because, you know, that's, that's the middle of the enlightenment period, basically. And so everyone's talking about it and it starts to become this big discussion. And so through that, you know, all these various academic discussions about whether vampires could be real or not, it's the idea sticks. It's debunked as being something legitimate by about 1755, 1768. And then by, you know, doctors basically in Vienna primarily. And then, um, and then eventually the word vampire enters English around 1734. And by that point, the idea had stuck and people were like, well, it's a bummer. It's not real, but this is a really cool concept though. And so although you do have some brief moments where the vampire appears in literature and poetry, it's not what you think. I've seen some people refer to, well, there was this old poem, God, what the heck was it called? Christabel, I forget. And like, you know, it's sort of vampire-like, but not really. It's not until you get to um, John Polidori's novella, The Vampire from 1819, that you really get a popular culture rendition of something. So you basically, they, they, they're, they are now at that point appropriating Slavic culture, vampire, and they're re-envisioning it as something that applies to, at that time, you know, basically um, British high society. And they make that, that's the first aristocratic vampire in history is the character called Lord Riven from the novella The Vampire, 1819, predating Dracula by almost, you know, 80, 90 years or whatever, because Dracula's first released in 1897. So at that point, the vampire becomes a very popular theme in 19th century Gothic literature. So you get all these different vampire characters and short stories that I don't even have time to discuss. One of the most well-known that everyone usually has heard of, at least if they know anything about this, is Varney the Vampire from 1845, 1847. And then you get uh, Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla from 1871, 1872. You know, not the first female vampire, but the most well-known. Uh, and really the only one that people knew about at that time. And then Dracula, of course, eventually comes 1897. But Dracula's at the like tail end of like a practically a full century of, of vampire stuff. Oh, wow. You know, so... Right. Dra- Just one, one quick yeah, question. Is that why the vampire that we usually think of when somebody mentions a vampire, is this Victorian dude, you know? Yeah. Not really somebody from medieval Eastern yeah. Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it starts with Lord Riven, and then, you know, of course, Dracula eventually becomes like the big well-known image, and it's based on all those previous models, basically. The novel Dracula, you know, I, honestly, a personal opinion, but I never liked the book. <laughs> uh, I read it a number of times, but the the first like fourth of it, you know, and, and usually lots of modern readers will say the same thing. Modern readers will often say, you know, the first like fourth of the book and the castle and stuff was cool. But man, after that, I kept wondering why anyone talked about this. Uh, Dracula as a whole doesn't really introduce anything new except the vampire turning into a bat very clearly doing that. Well, not very clearly, but clear enough. You're like, well, he transformed into a bat and the vampire lacking a reflection. Far as we know, that's the first time it ever appears. E- everything else has basically been done by that point. Um, but you know, Dracula eventually becomes the big image. So after 19th century, you know, vampire kind of dies off. It's still there. People knew about it, but Dracula as, as a book, although it was still being published, it's, it's not like a big seller like Harry Potter, you know, currently or something like that. Um, what happens of course, is a famous case where Nosferatu is released in 1922, against the wishes of the Stoker family. Florence Stoker, you know, was the copyright controller at that time. And, um, there's a, there's always been a myth that 
the director of that film, F.W. Murnau, and the company he worked for, Piranha Film, or somebody out there, contacted Florence for permission, copyright permission, you know, license basically to make the to make the movie. Never happened. So for some reason, it was an oversight. We don't know why Murnau did that um, because he probably would have had a decent grasp of copyright law for film, you know, novel to film translation. But for whatever reason, they don't do that. And when Florence finds out, there's of course a famous lawsuit around those for out too that you know is eventually very well known and pressed by 1924 and so prana film declares bankruptcy because they didn't have any money they they, bl- they blew it all making the film even though they were having good returns in germany and france it was not enough to get you know recover um so they're just like ah we declare bankruptcy so florence doesn't get any money she's angry and she orders the judge to have all copies of nosferatu confiscated and destroyed which of course he can't really can't really do was the movie a success though oh critically yeah the book yeah 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 Yeah. oh just critically well there was no mass hysteria when it no it it was it was a financial success the problem was is they dumped so much into the advertising and production i mean for example they traveled to slovakia to like film a castle and stuff there you know And, and like back then you know everything's being done by train so it was extremely expensive production for its time i don't even know how much they spent on it but you know they just they just couldn't make the money back and once the lawsuit hit even though there may have been the opportunity to recoup their losses and then you know have some profits coming in but by the time the lawsuit happens florence is going to get money right she's if if they actually had money she's going to get it because they've they breached copyright so um they just declare bankruptcy and basically wipe their hands of it and so when she orders the copies to be confiscated and destroyed of course they can't they can't do that because someone's going to keep one and hide it you know in the theater they're not going to have like a you know strike force or secret police get all these theaters in europe and hey you got those for auto you know, this is, this isn't like you know Soviet era where they can they could secret police or something. So, um, to, you know, copies survived, and then essentially the media attention around the Nosferatu lawsuit and the film led to more people being interested in Dracula. So then they start to buy the book more. Then Florence, in sort of desperation, has an official play version done, which her husband had already tried in 1897, but he, he failed at it. So she has a play version done in 1924. Eventually, that reaches the United States in 1927, and famously. Bella Lugosi played Dracula on stage, and of course, yep. everyone knows the famous vampire accent and the you know the widow's peak hairline. That was that was him as a person, and then of course we had the 1931 Universal rendition, which is basically they just basically filmed the play and added some stuff to it, and then from that point you get this long chain of like interest in vampires. It kind of ebb and flow until you get to basically the 70s and 80s, and it eventually explodes and becomes this huge thing. And there's tons of little details in there that lead up to the modern day where we have video games now and comic books and TV shows. And one of the things I always like to talk about in my course, I don't know if you, you I don't know if this is released anywhere over there, probably not, but McDonald's back in the 1990s and stuff, they used to have what they called the McNugget buddies. They were these chicken McNugget toys. And they had one year, I forget, I think it was probably 1994 or so. I don't remember the exact year, but they had a Halloween theme set. And one of those was a vampire. It was a vampire chicken McNugget. It had a cape. It had a necklace like Bella Lugosi, except with the McDonald's arches. It had a widow's peak and a bat on its head and stuff, and you could take off the little costume. And, you know, that's where we are now is where, you know, you can have a vampire chicken McNugget, and people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, why not? (laughs) You know, so, you know, Dracula eventually becomes the big image that led to all that stuff. But, of course, now we have, you know, we have Twilight. We have shows like um the strain you know which ended a couple years ago what we do in the shadows you know there's just so much stuff it's almost ridiculous anime coming from japan i mean there's just so much that that's and and that's basically the short story of how it all happened basically it was kind of a bunch of coincidences where a minor sort of demon in slavic folklore which explained disease and death 
became appropriated. And then from that, Europe went crazy over it for a while in literature. And then from literature, it entered theater and then film. And well, here we are. Now it's everywhere. <laughs> Where does Look, I even Vlad have, I even have my, my my ID thing. It's Vampirella. <laughs> oh, Vlad Tepish. Okay, yeah, good. That's uh, dedication. Yeah, so where does this slightly unhinged Valachian noble, Vlad the Impaler, yeah. I-, I thought he was the direct inspiration for Oh, yeah, that's a, for that's a pretty long-standing myth. So, um, does he have anything to do with Dracula at all, does. or is it just the he name? He does, but it, it's primarily the name. So what happened there, if you don't mind my long-winded explanation. No, not at a all, good friend of mine. Okay. A good friend of mine, his name's Dacre Stoker. Dacre is the great-grandnephew of Bram Stoker, and he's he's basically the scion of the of the Stoker family now. He travels the world doing tours and speeches on Stoker and the novel Dracula and other things. But he, not so long ago, actually this is probably last year, he came across some notations that Bram Stoker had made in a library, I think in London, I forget, where there's evidence now that earlier, before he really started... So, we don't know exactly when he started the Ray Dracula, but we know that by 1890, that year specifically, he was definitely deeply involved in it. He could have done some things before that that we don't know about, but he definitely was writing it then. But Dacre found some evidence that he had come across the name Dracula before in some books he had looked at, and then for some reason had remembered it, because uh, you may or may not know this, but Dracula's original name in the novel was actually Count Vampire. No, I didn't. He know was that. literally called. No, I never read the book. He was literally. Oh yeah, okay. Well, it's not. That's not in the book, of course. That's in like the original notes and stuff. He was. He was literally called Count Vampire. That was his name, Count Vampire. He basically finds a Polish spelling of of vampire and utilizes that as the guy's last name. Like I mean, how they'd be like calling yourself Count Werewolf, you know? Like it's like, can you be less obvious? Yeah, Captain Marvel <laughs> so, or whatever. Yeah, Captain Marvel <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. So and so Dacre believes he knew about Dracula before the name. And, you know, kind of remembered it. And then whenever he was visiting this town in England called Whitby, which is this sort of northeastern part of the coast there, um, he goes to a local library there, finds this book that's about, you know, principalities of like Wallachia and stuff like that and the Carpathian Mountains. And he finds the name in there again. So although the character Dracula in the book does present some history of who he is as a person, it's basically a conglomeration of things that Stoker pulls from different books he used for research. So... The actual character Dracula is really a conglomeration of a number of things in terms of being, you know, the real person, you know, Vlad Sepish or, of course, Vlad Sepish didn't call himself that. He didn't call himself Vlad the Impaler. He called himself Vlad Dracula because Dracula means son of Dracul. It means son of the dragon. That's what it means. So that that was his name because his father, Vlad II, was called Vlad Dracul. And so he was Vlad Dracula, which means son of Dracul. So really Stoker, when he comes across that name, he's like, oh, yeah, this this is what I need for my vampire's name. He was he was primarily interested in the name. So although the character does present a sort of quasi picture of the history of the real person, it's really just a fictional presentation. That's a, a, a pieces of many different things put together. So all right. So but as you primarily the name. Right. So people in Eastern Europe back then, after Vlad Tepes died, there were no legends that he drank blood because he was so bloodthirsty no, or anything no, of that there sort. There are, yeah. Supposedly, at least one instance, he he you know had some blood of one of his one of you know someone he killed you know Turks or something like that, and you know dipped some bread in like a a bowl made out of a skull or something, you know. So how much of that is fictional? You know, sometimes it, there's plenty of good information out there you can find about Vlad Dracula's actual biography. Um, a great deal that we know. A very famous book, you know, by a um, Romanian scholar called In Search of Dracula talks about it quite a great deal, actually. But at any rate, you know, supposedly, yeah, you know, he had you know drank some blood at some point, you know, and impaled people. But yeah. 
Wasn't there another countess in that region who was bathing in blood? I think her name was Elizabeth yeah. Bathory oh, yes. or something. Elizabeth Bathory, yeah, the the blood countess. Um, first off, that's that's another well well known legend that she bathed in blood. There, we don't actually have evidence of that. The evidence we have suggests that she was a sadist and she probably liked torturing young girls, but. Even today, we're not sure exactly how far that went. There have been at least a few scholars that have argued that because the um, the king of Hungary and Bohemia at that time, what the heck was his name? Um, I don't know. I forget. Hmm. Matthias I. Uh, Matthias Corvinus, I think. Yeah. That yeah might we be have it. a lot yeah, of legends he, uh, about him in Slovenia as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. okay, okay. So you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, he owed the Bathory family a significant debt. And if Elizabeth was found guilty of these so-called crimes, then that debt would be wiped clean. And so a number of scholars have used that detail specifically and some others to suggest that these stories of Bathory were actually just fabrications to make her look bad and to ruin that family's political power and stuff. But, but other people, you know, say, well, yeah, but we have some, you know, details here that suggest, you know, so uh, for a while there in the Guinness Guinness Book of World Records, it used to say something like, you know, she was known for killing 650 girls. And then I think the number changed in like 850 and something. It's like, when did you add 200 to that? They got more and more sensational. In reality, you know, it was probably something more like 50 to 80. I mean, not still a lot of people, but but yeah. Um, so, and that's another important detail too about the character Dracula in the novel is that technically speaking, there are little parts of Elizabeth Bathory that go into that character. There are some scholars that say, oh, we have no evidence of that. And no, we do because we know that one of the books that Stoker used for research for Dracula was the same book that Joseph Sheridan Lefanu used whenever he was reading Carmilla. And in that book, it talks about Bathory very clearly in there. And so he used parts of that story to make, you know, the character Carmilla and her, you know, vampire mother in that novella. And Stoker used the same book for research. So, you know, there's one particular element of Dracula you can connect to Bathory. She supposedly would ride in this black carriage to local towns to get these peasant girls and bring them back to the castle. And when Dracula picks up Jonathan Harker, the star of the book, he's in a black carriage. It's very similar to what Bathory would have essentially had. So, you know, again, the character drag is like a conglomeration of things. Yes, of course, the famous blood countess, you know, from Hungary, or, you know, technically she lived in Slovakia, part of what Slovakia at the time. But, um, but yeah, of course, you got, you got her there too. <laughs> you mentioned a couple of times now the connection between the emergence of the vampire myth with diseases. Could you break that yes. down a little bit further? Yeah, sure. Now, the primary function of the vampire, like it's a symbol, right? Because in folklore and myth, you find this all over the world, that people like symbols to explain what they can't explain. And basically what we mean there is, you know, today we have knowledge of viruses and bacteria and stuff, and our ancestors didn't have any of that. They didn't even know viruses existed. That's something that people sometimes don't get today, is that our ancestors didn't even know viruses existed. They, they, they had no conception of that. They didn't even know what a vitamin was. You know, so all these mysteries about diseases caused by dietary deficiencies or bacteria or, or viruses were, they were mis mysteries. They had no idea what really caused those things. So this is why you often find in folklore and myth that these various demons and things you'll find in all these different stories from different cultures all over the world, they're usually explanations in many cases of disease and stuff like that. So the vampire was the primary one, not the only one, but primary symbol of disease in Slavic culture. You have other things, you know, that I won't get into, but it, it could spread disease and kill people. So you often found it being used as a scapegoat whenever there was a disease pandemic. So during the so-called great vampire epidemic of the 18th century, which I, you know, I mentioned earlier, there were two diseases in particular that were rampant in Serbia, especially one of those is rabies. So there was a rabies pandemic at the time that was causing the actual deaths and also a dietary disease or deficiency, um, a disease caused by a dietary deficiency. And the disease is called pellagra. 
and that is caused by overconsumption of corn products, and it causes an imbalance in tryptophan and vitamin B3 in the body. So those two things are basically working in conjunction and served at the time, and there are so many people dying that people are looking for an answer. And, oh, we, we have this thing. Yeah, we got this thing that we believe in, and this is what does this. So that's one of the reasons that vampire hysteria spread at that time was two diseases, basically, were the main cause. And they, you could argue there were other minor diseases, maybe tuberculosis and something like that. But we actually have data from this, from the Ottoman Empire about you know these disease outbreaks in Serbia, especially at the time, primarily rabid dogs that were a problem in Serbia. And the Turks had noted that before in prior centuries had caused an outbreak of you know rabies. Um, so what did people actually the... think? That vampires are going around biting people? Yeah. Then they actually, they had rabies? In effect? Yeah, because keep yeah, because of course you know they had no rabies vaccine back then. Yeah. So you got rabies back then. You had about what four to five days, roughly, until it's like incubated and starts to get in your brain. And once it gets up there, you turn into basically like a a monster. Yeah, yeah it's a horrifying beings. disease, right? Oh, it's it's, it's horrible. It has a, it has a ninety nine point nine nine to infinity mortality rate. Only one person in recorded history is known to have survived rabies yeah. with that vaccine. So. You know, from data, it wiped out whole villages. And in certain cases, people that weren't infected would just abandon the village. Jesus. If your wife was infected, your your uncle, you just, you just left. Um, you know, but basically those people, there, there's, some, there's something happening there. And it's not human, basically, is what, how they interpreted it. So they would dig up exactly. a body that they suspected was a vampire and then they would burn it or run it through Yeah, there stakes. are various things that they would do. They would burn it, stake it. Chop off its head and put the head between the legs. Sometimes they would chop the body parts up, you know, and scatter them around like a puzzle. Um, sometimes they would put garlic on it and then rebury it. Sometimes they would bury it in another location, like outside the cemetery or at a crossroads. Sometimes they would throw poppy seeds in the grave because the vampire was supposed to have a compulsion to count. There are many different things you could do. Uh, put a sickle at the throat. Put a piece of iron in its mouth. Put a stake anywhere in its chest, including the heart. Put a stake in its head. I mean... Now, there was even there was a recent archaeological dig, I think, somewhere in Poland where they uncovered another vampire burial. And in this case, this vampire had a sickle in its throat, or may have actually been a scythe, but you know, some sort of you know blade like that. And then they had actually put a a padlock on its toe, and that I, that's the first time I've heard of that one. <laughs> you could put a lock on its foot, and that keeps it bound to the ground somehow. Like so you would chain a bicycle. Lots, yeah, almost like that. Yeah, mm. it's very interesting. Yeah. How do they know who to suspect? Which corpse is oh, the likely culprit, good, good, is the likely question. vampire? So first off, you know, it varied, but there were signs that someone could be a vampire even when they were alive, you know, and there are lots of, I mean, the way the bed's leaning here, I'm going to go on my knees here so I'm a little more comfortable. Is that, is that okay? Perfect. So yeah. there were, there, there were so-called signs of vampirism when you were alive. Um, for example, even something as simple as having red hair was a marker that you might be a vampire. Oh, now, always the, the important gingers, detail there. It? Yeah, it's always the, exactly. Red hair. If you were born on certain days, if you were born on Christmas Day, for example, that was an old Slavic pagan holiday. If you're born on that day or near the winter solstice, that was another thing. There are various things you could look for. But the important detail there is unlike the witch craze, where things like that can mark you as a witch and you're going to be like tortured and killed, vampire epidemic, it wouldn't matter because by definition, you have to be dead first to become a vampire. So, you know, if, if you had red hair, they would they would note that, you know, they might be like, you know, hey, what, whenever you die, we're going to have to. <laughs> and, you know, culturally, you probably would accept it and be like, oh, you know, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I'm going to be gone. Whatever anyway. you got to do. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, do what exactly. you will. 
Yeah, do what you will. But yeah, there were ways you could tell someone before they died or could be a vampire. Um, even things whenever you were born. There are tons of details there. And then, you know, once you have your suspected vampire, and there are different ways you could figure it out, you know, like they would, if they could have a vampire hunter, which could include a dog, by the way, and you can you know, sniff out the grave and find the grave the vampire was in. And then what was happening there is when they would they unearth these bodies, they would then, you know, see bodies in various stages of decomposition. And the average person doesn't know anything about the science of decomposition, even today. No one, but no, I mean, who wants to unless you're involved in that field? So, you know, what they were, what they were doing then is they were misinterpreting signs of decomposition as signs of vampirism. Oh, look, this one has some blood coming out of his mouth. Well, if this is an era when you're not embalming and draining the body of blood, well, eventually the pressure of decomposition is going to cause blood to come out of your mouth because it's your own blood. But they would interpret that as, well, this is blood he drank or something like that. There are various things. So basically they would misinterpret signs of decomposition as signs of vampires. And then, you know, then they would do various things to the body to make sure it didn't come back. They could burn it. They could chop its head off, whatever. You just mentioned yeah. that this comes from pagan belief. But Christianity was the was the big daddy of religion in, in Eastern Europe at that time, yeah. right? In the 11th century, yeah. mm-hmm. probably in most yeah. of Eastern Europe. How did Christianity yeah. view this belief of regular people who, who believed in vampires? What, what did the like local priests say? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question. So very easy to answer, too. So at the time when we're in the vampire epidemic, Orthodoxy, of course, is the dominant religion in, you know, like Serbia and parts of Eastern Europe like that. You get into Poland, you're getting into Catholicism and stuff. But either way, it doesn't matter if it's Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church. They didn't like it because first the vampire is going against Christian belief, first off, because the idea of Christian belief, of course, it varies, you know, in different forms of Christianity. But basically, a dead body can't come back from the grave unless it's resurrected by Christ, essentially. Right or you know God, so thus it's it's impossible via faith for this to be happening anyway. So they don't think it's possible. The Catholic Church had more of a tendency, especially during the witch craze, to like condemn stuff like this as witchcraft and to try to get it to be like hushed. Whereas the Orthodox Church, they were kind of like more hands off, where they didn't like it, but they were like, well, you know, we got a conundrum here because if we try to fight against this belief, the people who actually they they actually believe in this, and there's more of them than there are us. And if they believe in it and we like condemn it, you know, we're going to kind of look like we're almost like on the side of the vampires. So we can't really condemn it. Um, We'll tell them, you know, hey, I don't think it's a good idea. But, you know, if they still do it, we can't like force them to stop because that could be bad. So they, they, in Serbia, they tried to pass laws and stuff like that, but it never really worked. But the church also can't get involved in it because it doesn't believe it's it's anything anyway. So the Orthodox Church tended to do this in Eastern Europe as a whole. This is why you still see, like, even today, like in Russia especially, a very strong retention of old pagan belief about spirits and stuff like that. Like, you know, in Russia, you got the Damavoy, the house spirit, and things like that. That, you know, other people don't necessarily believe in it anymore. It's a very well-known cultural image. And the peasants basically were, like, stuck in, like, a medi- medieval way of thinking practically until the 1930s in certain parts of Russia, so, you know. So they, they believe stuff like this existed. And one of the reasons why is that the church was like, yeah, let's see, you believe in a house spirit. That's not Christian, but does it really matter? Well, you know, we'll just, whatever. Yeah, you can believe in that. So um, that's essentially what happened is they were, they were a little more hands off in the East than they were in you know, Western Christianity. So it enabled it to sort of like spread a little further. But the church, this, this is the important detail. The story of a long-winded no, no, explanation no, no, no. there. But Please, it's really, yeah, it's really this interesting. Is, this, is, this is what you refer to in folklore as a dual belief or dual faith, where basically you've got these people who have old pagan belief that never really went away and it's been around for centuries now. So they have these things that they believe in, but they're also Christian. The old beliefs are part of their old pagan traditions, and the church kind of ignores it, but they're still doing them. So if you give someone a Christian burial, 
and they're coming back from the grave as a vampire. Obviously, Christian burial, cross on the grave, whatever, doesn't matter. So you got to go back to the pagan stuff. The Slavic people, for example, they used to burn their dead. They practiced cremation exclusively. They did not bury their dead intact. They burned the bodies. So when Christianity comes in, it doesn't like cremation, and it tries to get them to stop, but they remembered, you know, all right, well, we'll do this new thing. You're, you're telling us we got to do and well, the cultural shift happened over a couple hundred years. But if they come back... We're going to go back to that old thing. We're going to burn it then because that will stop it. So it's what you call dual belief or dual faith or retention of old belief in the presence of a, a new dominant religion, basically. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? It, it does. It does. But when does the yeah, okay. the vampires of today, when we see them in fiction, they're allergic to crosses? You know? Oh, yeah. Where does that so, come from um, then? Now, I will say that Stoker is the first person to make that a big theme in Dracula. But I have come across one case of a vampire burial where they reburied the, vamp the so-called vampire with the crucifix on it. Now, why would they do that? Because, um, you know, I, we don't know for sure, but presumably that would be the grave of like someone like a suicide who would not be given a Christian burial. And so you throw the cross in there to basically bind it via the religion it wasn't given for its own funeral, and that was supposed to reverse the process. So it's not to say that Christianity wasn't used in at least one case prior to Stoker as a way to stop a vampire, but Stoker makes it a big theme because he was very Christian, right? So he views Dracula as almost like a form of or a symbol of the devil and the people fighting against evil, fighting against Satan, fighting against Dracula, you know, is the Christian side. And so they're going to use Christian objects to keep this stuff away. So he's the person to really make it a big theme because in the novel, there's holy water and communion wafers and crucifixes, but there's also garlic and, you know, wolfsbane or whatever and stuff like that. And as wolfsbane's mentioned there, I have to check that, but garlic's mentioned. You know, so it's a combination of pagan belief and Christian belief. But he makes the, the Christian thing a really big idea for sure. He, he definitely, you know, you got to give him some credit for that. But technically speaking, he's not the first person to use crucifix against a vampire, is what I'm saying. Where does garlic come into play? Is it yeah. is it because people figured out that it's a, a mild antiseptic? Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. So first you got that, right? So basically... Garlic is an old example of what you would call lore in Slavic belief, where it's a, essentially a curative thing that has certain properties that make people healthier. So as you just said, it's a, you know, like a minor antiseptic. It can help balance intestinal flora, you know, like if you had like a, you know, ate something bad or something, it can help balance out bad bacteria. It's also known as a blood purifier. And even by chance myself, I came across a very interesting article from the National Institute of Health. I don't know when it was published a couple of years ago, but about how garlic can balance hormone levels even, you know, because of some chemical in there increases in, at least in men, what's called luteinizing hormone. I mean, you can look it up, but I was like, wow, that's interesting. I mean, I never knew that before. I, I forget how I even came across that. I was doing like research in the garlic and, you know, health or something. And it like, it popped, it kept popping up. I was like, hormones, really? So, you know, so here's how we could look at that. Let's say a long time ago, you know, I, this is going to sound kind of stupid, but let's say, you know, some guy's like, oh, I just don't. I don't feel like a man anymore, you know? And then he just, you know, one day has a bunch of garlic. And then two days later, he's like, hey, <laughs> feeling kind of virile here. What the hell happened? You know, so presumably they would have noticed some cause and effect of garlic and ingesting it over, you know, generations. and be like, this thing here keeps us healthier for some reason. We don't know why or what it's actually doing, 
but it's doing something. And therefore, if the vampire is a symbol of disease, then this thing which protects against disease is going to keep that thing away. Makes sense. So I just got to put some in my house. Yeah, exactly. So, Or I got to put some in the grave now and it won't come out because it can't touch it, basically. Okay. Please link, That's uh, what link that study to me after the... About, oh, vir- oh, about, virility, okay. about virility after the conversation. Uh, it, I'll just, I could just do an email, I guess. <laughs> Too much information. Send me an email to remind me, and then I'll, I'll send it in the email. All right, awesome. I got to find the one the article I actually found in, in particular. It was very interesting. It's just for you know, health lots, purposes, lots of like medical you know. knowledge. It. It, it's for a friend. Uh, it's for a friend. Um, uh, you said <laughs> vampires are a symbol, right? Does that mean that different yeah. incarnations of vampires address different concerns that people might have had at that time, for example? Yeah, so, exactly. And that's what's happened yeah. over time. That, that's why it's so popular today yeah, even right. is because the vampire – it's why I tell all my students. The vampires basically now become a mirror of human existence. Any changes in society, culture, politics, anything you can think of, a vampire will be there to absorb those things and you'll find it in film and a comic book or something. All right. If you know, we limit ourselves – Right to the to the world okay. of cinema. Could we go through some of the most popular versions to see what's kind of lurking underneath in terms of historical context? Yeah, just a little Sh- bit. Sure, uh, like modern or just like a just quick overview or something. If we start, excuse me, with Nosferatu and then. Oh yeah, Nosferatu, of course. So some people have argued that the vampire and their Nosferatu. They actually call me called Count Orlock, technically. It's a variation of Count Dracula. Some people have argued, well, that's a symbol of the effects of the flu pandemic of 1918-1919, its effects right, on Germany, because part of the plot takes place in Germany. Other people have said, well, this is an example of the effects of World War One or the Great War, as they called it back then, because actually in Dutch, the word Orlok means war, you know, so if someone, you know, pointed that out once. So, you know, maybe that in that case, he's an easy example of the effects of World War One on Germany. Um, or the Great War, as they called it. Other people said, you know, this is an example of sort of pre-Nazi anti-Semitism in German media, for example, mm. in the way in the way that the character looks and what he does and his his nose and his eyebrows and things. So those are three examples of potential, not necessarily true, potential symbolic meanings of that vampire for that audience at that time. Then if you jump ahead to Dracula 1931 with Bela Lugosi, some people argued the reason that film did so well, because if you watch the movie, it's actually it's pretty awful. The The cinematography is terrible. Lots of the acting is just so bad. If you look at the so-called Spanish version, it's much better. Lugosi is really the only thing about that film that makes it still watchable because of it just he's just He's iconic in that. At any rate, some people argued that the reason that film did so well for 1931 audiences is that somewhere in the back of our heads back then, Lugosi basically symbolized like the evil rich, so to speak, during the Great Depression. And these, the these people like bankers and stuff. Yeah. So you got that symbol potentially. Uh, then you jumped in the 1950s with like Christopher Lee, you know, in the Hammer Dracula series. And people have argued that that's an example of changing opinions about sexuality. Um, or if you go to the 1970s, there's a, there are, t- in the 1970s, you get a ton of these Carmilla and Bathory films because of interest in that character and where she came from. Um, you know, and lots of those films revolve around ideas that were basically borrowed from second wave feminism, or they, they called it, you know, Women's liberation back then, you know, so you see this sort of like second wave feminism finding its way in there. And then you get to the 1980s and the vampires being revised. It's becoming more and more like human and sort of like, you know, losing the cape and stuff like that and losing the accent. And then we see the vampire becoming a symbol of, you know, and there are other things too, I'm just skipping over. We see the vampire becoming a symbol of like disillusioned youth or breakdown of the nuclear family, like the Lost Boys, 1987 is a good example of that. Then you jump to the 90s, you know, you got gender identity, you got racial identity there, films like Interview with the Vampire. Empire, which of course is based on the book from 1976, where vampirism is being used as a symbol of 
people who were gay and ostracized from American society at the time, basically. Then we get Blade, 1998. You know, you got some racial identity going on there, uh, even though I guess he's technically half vampire. But um, then you get to the you know 21st century. You got Edward Cullen eventually. Edward Cullen is just essentially a form of Byronic hero. That Lord Riven character I mentioned back in 1819. Edward Cullen is basically a symbol of that. He's also like a symbol of like this idealistic vision of love, the sort of like bad boy who needs tamed image in media. You know, you often find in American media where there's this there's this guy out there, and once he falls in love with this certain girl, he's gonna he's gonna change and be the best guy in the whole world. He basically is like a symbol of that, you know, so that's going up to the modern day stuff. Basically, that's, that's what's happened is any new generation now has their own problems and their own questions. And the vampire can help us at least not necessarily solve those problems, but engage them in an indirect way. You know what I mean? Maybe this is a bit of an oversimplification, but Hollywood's trend does seem to go in the direction of increasingly sexy vampire. Like Nosferatu was this yeah. completely hideous little monster who didn't yeah, exactly yeah. make us put uh, our Marvin Gaye records on. And then we had the kind of this creepy Eastern European uncle, you know, the Bela Lugosi, also Christopher Lee a little bit. Yeah. But the closer to modern times we get, the steamier the vampires become. Suddenly there's, like you mentioned, Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt in their prime and then and Blade and oh, yeah, HBO's yeah. True Blood. Yeah. And these vampires are just like fornicating yes. all yeah. over the place. Were vampires just yeah. following a general industry trend or is there something else going on here between vampires and sexiness yeah, basically basically an industry trend um oh, well disappointing that, i'd say it, it kind of became a trend and then you know it just is a, one form of vampire it's very you see, because of course the old adage is sex sells you know so if you have this thing that's like an ideal lover and like has ideal strength and immunity to disease and never gets old, you know, it's like a, it's almost like a human ideal, like something we wish we could be, you know. But really, where that starts, where the vampire starts to become a sex symbol, is when Bela Lugosi starts playing Dracula on stage in the 1920s. Um, I forget, did you did you say you ever read the novel Dracula? I didn't, because I heard it's okay. So I, I wanted to, but then I heard it's a little bit boring. Yeah, I don't know. I, then it's just like, and I read yeah, Frankenstein, it's, 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 and I was like, oh, this is not that gripping. I don't know. Maybe yeah. It's, yeah, it's really not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Frankenstein's got some moments you're right, like, right, eh. right, yeah. So I was like, I thought Dracula uh, is in the same vein as Frankenstein. I was like, yeah, I'm gonna skip that. It is, yeah, and it's longer too, Oof. you know. So, uh, but well, um, but yeah. Up. So yeah. if you actually were to read the novel or look up, like you know, how does Dracula actually look in the book? You're gonna see that basically. I just came across. Oh, you know what? Hold on. I came across a very interesting, very accurate depiction. Uh, in a meme of what Dracula actually looks like in the book. He's basically depicted as essentially like a creepy old pedophile. You know, it's basically <laughs> what he looks like. Let's find this. Where did I have this at? Hold on, hold on. Oh my God. All good. I just got this the other day. Hold on. Oh, there it is. There it is. Okay. So can you oh, see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is essentially what Dracula looks oh like. Oh my in the gosh. Book. That's okay. not what I was picturing at all. He looks mm, like some sort of yeah. a demented version of Albert Einstein. Yeah, yeah, he's he's supposed to have he has bad breath. It says that. Right he's like uh, just for rank. for the people who are just listening to this episode, he has long gray hair, really red eyes, like an old alcoholic, yeah, red eyes, and a long gray, gray mustache. mustache. That's not yeah, sexy he also has at all. Like pointy fingernails. It's not. No. Yeah, he's got pointy fingernails, and he actually has hair on his palms. So his palms have like hair on them. So he, he's depicted as basically this disgusting old guy. This disgusting old creeper is essentially how he's depicted. Lugosi looks nothing like that. And Lugosi was asked, you know, well, how did you depict? How did you decide to depict Dracula in this way? And he essentially said, you know, well, at the time at least, he had never read the novel. He said, I, I just depicted Dracula as I envisioned him as an actor. I presented him as I thought he should look. And just by the way that Lugosi looked, he's this, you know, dashing, exotic, you know, um, mature Hungarian guy with an accent. 
and women just, you know, including Clara Bow, a very famous actress, just fell in love with them. They were like, oh my God, this is, there's just something about this sinister, you know, dangerous man. And that's really where it started was his depiction of Dracula in 1920s and 1931. Uh, although technically Carmilla in the, the novella from 1871-1872 is depicted in a way that she's supposed to be basically an attractive young girl, even though she's like 200 years old technically. And there, there's a suggestion of sexuality in there. That that was like a disturbing way for people when they first read that because she's being de- – basically in that era, she's being depicted as like the opposite of what people at the time thought should be the ideals of like you know virginity and womanhood you know, and stuff like that. Whereas Lugosi's Dracula, he becomes a sex symbol for that role. He said, this is according to him, he said most of the fan mail he got was from women who were basically obsessed with him for being Dracula. I can't believe this. This is uh, really somehow, I don't know, disappointing as well because, you know, ever since I uh, started watching television, Eastern Europeans in Hollywood were either James Bond villains, demented ones, or Borat, you know, yes. and Eastern uh, Europeans, yeah, spies or spies yeah, like who want or, who want to destroy the world, mafia, or yeah. like you know Borat yeah. or somebody really comical from Eastern Europe yeah. who doesn't know what's really happening. So the accent was never yeah, considered sexy. Yeah, well, it's yeah. kind of sad to know that well, yeah we we missed the trip. Uh, maybe it's gonna come yeah. back now with The Witcher and the the whole oh, yeah, Eastern yeah, European yeah, folklore revival in Hollywood. Yeah, folklore turned into fantasy there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's basically how it started. You know, over time, you know, of course, there were transitions and stuff. But eventually, you know, that became like a big thing. Because like I said, it's, it's it's simple. Sex sells, you know. So if you're selling a vampire and it's, it's sexual yeah. elements, especially like female vampire images, that people are, you know, like anything else, they're going to buy it, basically. Coming back like an ideal. to the idea of vampire as a symbol. People in medieval Eastern Europe believed vampires really existed out there. Hopefully, nobody really yeah. does that anymore. We read about them in comic books, we see them in movies, but more than anything else, these days we're simply mostly entertained by them. So does a symbol still work when we know it's just that, a symbol, a piece of fiction? Oh, of course, yeah. And the reason for that is as a symbol, as I would argue at least, as a symbol, the vampire represents problems that we don't necessarily have an answer for. So it gives us sort of like an emotional release to experience, you know, seeing it, you know, and maybe whether or not we're conscious of what it represents. You know, so do I think it, you know, Matt, is that ruined as a symbol? No, that's one of the reasons why it's so powerful is because any change in culture, the vampire will just absorb it. And, you know, a good example of that is um, just this April, we had that recent film with Nicolas Cage where Nicolas Cage plays Dracula. I haven't seen it yet. I'm a massive fan of Nicolas Cage, so I'm going to go see it. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I really enjoyed that movie. Nice. Um, I'm teaching summer summer session Dracula course now at UVA here in Charlottesville, and the second summer session, students were like, "Hey, can we watch that for our, like our final analysis project?" Because we you know we analyze the film and the vampire is a symbol in there, and the symbol is so obvious in that movie where you have. I think Nicolas Cage did an awesome job as Dracula. Awesome, but it's you know, a comedy, he, he, he right? I've seen the trailer, and it seems like over the top on dark purpose. horror comedy. Yeah. Oh yeah, over the top. Yeah, for sure. It definitely has some funny moments, um, but. The interesting thing as a symbol is Dracula is basically presented as a symbol of like toxic, abusive relationships. So one of the scenes, you know, and this, this doesn't ruin anything if you haven't seen it yet. One of the scenes, Renfield is in like the support group for people that are, you know, are getting out of narcissistic relationships and they're talking about their boyfriends and stuff. And he's like, you know, I'm in a toxic relationship. He just says it, you know. So we have that whole, you know, image and that idea that's you know, currently very, very much in trend right now in American culture about, you know, toxicity and misogyny and the effects of like, you know, trauma on relationships and stuff like that. Dracula basically represents that, you know. And here we got Dracula again in a, in a new form in a very inventive way, I thought. I, I really enjoyed it. But, you know, symbolically he represents 
toxic relationships. Mm. Um, and there's actually at least one article I know of that's published about that idea and that particular movie. I didn't even know it existed until a student pointed it out to me. They found it. They're like, hey, look at this. I'm like, oh, yeah. But so there's an example of something very recent. It just came out this April, right? Right. Where they're taking, you know, a modern idea, toxicity, you know, misogyny and relationships or whatever. And Dracula symbolizes So that. Dracula essentially, or vampires essentially, work as this empty vessel that you can put some sort of collective anxiety into. And Perfect then... way of saying it, like an empty vessel, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Did you see, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to ask this, but there's a film called Morbius that I've heard is one of the worst oh. films not just about vampires, but ever made. And uh, it spawned a, co- yeah. a lot of like memes on the internet as well. Tons so of memes. Yeah, yeah, like it's Morbin yeah. time the and only... all that stuff. Don't Morb me. Okay, did you... Did... I'm about to Morb. <laughs> did you see it? I've only seen clips. Okay. Um, I had, this is funny. I had, some, I had some students who are computer science majors from last semester, well, the past fall semester. And constantly they would bring up jokes in class about that dumb movie. So yeah, it was interesting because when they first were announcing that film, I think originally it was supposed to drop in 2018. It took them a while. The, if you look up like the original poster for it, like it, it was depicted in a way where it seemed like it was going to be a very dark take on like a Marvel movie, which would have been great. But you know, then over time, you know, people that are in charge think they know what they're doing and turn it into something that it probably shouldn't have been. So I haven't seen the full movie, just some clips, but you know, I, I've seen all the memes and the, the silly videos and stuff like the one dance scene and things that everybody knows about, you know, I poop, I poop my pants, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Sorry. I'm, you know, look, the, look up, the, the podcast's name is you're a trash. So I, I have an affinity for really trashy uh, stuff. Oh, okay. I, all right. So I didn't gather that. the courage like, yet to see the movie though. Yeah. I haven't seen, I haven't seen it yet. I I, I've to. had students that saw it and they said it was terrible, but it's interesting because the way they introduced it, because Marvel has all these like, they have a really important, you know, creation they made in the seventies called the Tomb of Dracula, and the way that that comic book series happened was they they made Morbius first in nineteen seventy one, basically to test the censorship code of time in comics industry in America to see if they'd be okay with it. And once they were, they're like, all right, well here here's a whole series about vampires, and they they introduced Blade in that series too, you know, famously in nineteen seventy three, the you know, Vampire Hunter. Um, so um, I. I anticipate that after Morbius, they're going to dish out. I'm surprised they haven't touched the Tomb of Dracula yet. You know, that would be great as like a Disney Plus series for sure. You know, it lasted for seven years originally. I forget how many issues it was, but... What's your f- favorite version of, of a vampire on the oh, screen? Like a, oh, a vampire? That's a question I get asked a lot. You know, I got to really think about that one. Boy, I've seen some interesting things over the what years. What do you think of, the, uh, of Coppola's version? The 1992. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good question. Now, although I would say technically in terms of like details, there is a made-for-TV British film from a BBC film, I think, from 1974, maybe 77, somewhere in there, that is technically a little more accurate in its depiction of the novel Dracula. But me personally, in seeing various versions of Dracula over the years, you know – I would say the 1992 Coppola film, aside from some changes like the you know the whole Mina Dracula love story thing, which doesn't occur in the novel at all, aside from that like big change he makes there, I would say that that movie is probably still, in my opinion, the most accurate version of the novel done. Meaning like the the feeling of the good parts because it basically condenses all the important stuff into like a very workable amount of space. So all the superfluous characters and stuff that you really don't need and kind of like you know bog down the plot and make it a real slog aren't there. So uh, and then the the casting he did for that film, other than Keanu Reeves, no offense, is Jonathan Harker, 
was amazing. I mean, Anthony Hopkins as Von Helsing was was perfect. I mean, pick. Gary Oldman is um, pretty awesome too for me. Oh yeah, he yeah. did. He did a great job as a young and old Dracula. And although the old version of Dracula there is, you know, not exactly like what it is in the book. It's one of the it's it's one of the only versions I know of. There's maybe two versions. I forget the other one where he has hair on his palms. He has the actual hairy palms and stuff like that. Start that's movie. where I mean. When um, I was growing I was, up, sorry, I just have to ask about this. When I was growing up, I went to Bible school, and they used to tell us if you masturbate, that hair is gonna grow on your palms. Is there any connection with? <laughs> no. No? Okay, that that's a very that's another myth about the novel Dracula. I've seen that in some respectable publications that the reason the Dracula has hair on his palms is that there was a Victorian era. Our 19th century era superstition that if you masturbate too much, you get hair in your palms. I actually spent a long time seeing if I could track anything down about that. There is zero evidence that anyone in the 19th century ever thought that you get hair in your palms. Now, the thing that they did think, and you can actually find this in some old medical texts, is they thought you could go blind if you masturbated too much. And they actually believed that a long time ago. Of course, we know that's not true. But the ha- so people, oh, where the hairy palms come from then? Why does Dracula have that? Because that, of course, would make him pretty gross. If he masturbated too much and had hairy palms, and he's got hair in his palms, that guy might, that guy might have been touching himself before he, you know, he appears in the, the first couple pages. You see it, you know. Jeez, oh man, he probably just came right out of the bathroom. But in actuality, the reason he has hairy palms is one of the books that Stoker used for research was talks about werewolves mentions that they have hair in their palms. So he took that from one of the books he used for research, and he gave Dracula hairy palms. It's nothing to do with okay. masturbation. Okay. Okay. Sorry. To yeah. No. Out. Okay. No. No. It's just, it's okay. <laughs> I would have made him creepier for right, right, sure. Right. You know. <laughs> yeah. No. Coppola's film was. Um. I think it was the first film that I saw about Dracula, to be honest. And my parents yeah. didn't want me uh, to. The, the musical score, everything. Yeah. And amazing. I remembered that yeah. I was too young. To, I just saw the opening scene, and then my parents caught me watching it, and they're like, "Yeah, you have to get yeah. out of your room." But yeah. I remember that yeah, scene where on, Gary man. Oldman sticks his sword into the cross and then it starts bleeding oh, at the yeah, beginning the blood, yeah. where he turns into dracula and really terrified yeah. me and it stayed with me for a very long yeah. time and i was like i'm not gonna watch that yeah. for a while i watched yeah. it recently yeah. now preparing for the interview and yeah it's, it's pretty it's not that scary actually it's pretty good it's funny also at times yeah yeah it is you know it's got some cheese to it but one of the things i like about that movie is the set design the costume design i thought was awesome um the acting overall i think is, is great and really like representative of how the characters actually work in the book there are changes of course but um but yeah, wait 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 wait. I, I was just lost my train of thought wait what were, were you just talking about you were just talking about okay the, oh um the, the sticking the sword into the cross and then it starts yeah, bleeding but, but there there are things added that, that never happens in the i book. see never Okay. Yeah. Um, Coppola adds this sort of like backstory to start to give him, you know. Yeah. Uh, and one of the reasons he does that is that now the whole the whole reason that Dracula is leaving Transylvania to go to England is that Mina is the reincarnation of his yeah, dead yeah. his dead bride. That, that's not that's not in the book, <laughs> because in the book Dracula is basically just moving. He's basically bought some properties in England. He's going to like be a house flipper or something. And it doesn't sound very, you know, evil or sinister today. Like, you know, I'm going to buy some properties, you know? <laughs> oh, okay. Why? So that's a big change that Coppola makes in there. And he kind of has to give that little, you know, backstory at the start to make it seem, you know, more purposeful. So Dracula has some reason for actually, like if, if you've been there for 400 so years, you're obviously doing good. Why do you need to leave? <laughs> But yeah, the musical score of that film and everything, I, I was I always thought was oh, oh, oh that's what I was gonna say. I remember now. One of the things I like about that film 
uh, is that you can still watch it today and it still has like this sort of like, at least to me, like a timeless quality. And I think one of the reasons for that is Coppola really avoided using CGI because CGI was just on the rise at that time. And he knew if he used too much of it, it would look dated in like a couple months. So there's only like one or two instances, very brief with like some torches and those blue lights at the start of the gates that he uses CGI. The rest of the film, he relied entirely on old school filming tricks to make it work. And because of that, you know, it just feels more hands-on and, like, tangible. I guess, yeah, you can totally but, see that. But, yeah, it's got some moments, you know, like where Dracula takes Mina's tears and turns him into diamonds. You're like, really? You got to put that in there. <laughs> but, you know, other than those moments. Yeah, and the I, costumes, are, the costumes the are great and the locations. And, like, oh, I you, love the, the costumes. attention to detail yeah, although, yes. and, and all of that stuff. Oh, fantastic. yeah, it's amazing. By the way, yeah. where does this beef between werewolves and vampires come from? Is that a recent thing? That is a more recent thing. And, you know, I forget the film where this first appeared. Uh, it's in the fifties, I think. Uh, what the heck was it? But at any rate, um, you know, so the idea that they became like mortal enemies really starts in this, this, you know, random like B movie or whatever from like the fifth. I forget what it's called. Oh. Um, but basically, so there's no there's no folkloric precedent for this. There is, there is. but not Let's like go. that. The oh. folkloric precedent is that yeah, sorry, is that. The base of the vamp, one of the few things the vampire could transform into, not a bat, they didn't transform into bats, they could transform into ravens, or they could transform into a wolf. And the reason for this, the reason they could transform into a wolf in some cases, or control wolves, like Dracula does, is because this connects to, this is that dual, the dual belief, dual faith thing I talked about earlier. In Slavic belief, the original Slavic priests, you know, when they were pagan, they were called the Volkov. Volk means wolf. Yeah. You know, you, you, wait, you, wait, do you speak Slovenian? It's my native. Oh, yeah, of it's course. You live there. Yeah, we yeah, have Volk. Yeah, yeah. We have so, Volk. Uh, oh, so that, that's what it is yeah. in Slovenia. Volk. Yeah, yeah. So it means wolf. So basically, the reason the Slavic pagan priest was called the Volk is because they would wear the skin of a wolf to get more power. Basically. Badass. And so, yeah. And what happened over time is that when the church was fighting against the vampires, essentially a form of like, you know, heresy almost. They condemned these ideas, and then as the Volkov as an image died over time in certain areas, the vampire absorbed parts of the Volkov image, and they became this in, – in certain areas, you find the vampires described in folklore as being very hairy in the grave, and then could change into a wolf, and that would like be all that it would change into. Because basically, it's, it's, a, it's a connection to that old religious tradition, and the vampire just like absorbed it and kept it. So essentially what that means is that in certain areas, at least, vampire and the werewolf are basically the same thing. And not different at all. They're the same entity. And they, they wouldn't fight each other because they are each other, basically. Um, now, the werewolf then as an image becomes a big thing in Western European folklore right in like the middle of the witch craze around 15th and 16th centuries. We don't know why it happened. It was kind of like a sort of slow yet sudden process at the same time. There, Some people believe that basically it was a stolen example of Slavic folklore where they, you know, further to the West, you get some of these ideas about the vampire turning into a wolf. So in like Serbia and stuff like that. So possibly somebody from Western Europe heard that and then, you know, it started to find its way into Western European consciousness. It became its own separate thing, but 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 it, you know it's difficult to argue because the, the thing is is you have shape shifting images in the wolves and stuff and in Norse culture and all over the world, people being able to shape shift in the animals. So there's so there's one theory that the vampire and werewolf are basically one and the same thing, but there's also arguments that the werewolf image in Western Europe is a completely separate idea. We just don't know exactly how it arose, basically. Okay, so this yeah. conflict between werewolves and vampires is a completely recent invention. It has nothing to media, do with yeah, it's media. Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, I I would take time to find the film, but I forget what it's called. Right. You know? Yeah, just vampires need a more how should I put it? A more powerful adversary. So let's set werewolves against them. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> too bad. 
Yeah, bummer. By the way, you mentioned Vampire Hunters at the beginning of the conversation, and you said that dogs could also be Vampire Hunters. Did I hear that correctly? In some cases, yeah. I wanted to ask yes, you about that yeah. earlier. Is there like a... Yeah. Was there an actual profession of a vampire hunter in, in medieval Europe? Because mm-hmm. I know there are yeah, witch it, hunters. Well, yeah. I had a conversation with a yeah. historian that's researching witchcraft and witch trials in medieval Europe. And she said that witch hunters actually existed. It was just people who were conning mm-hmm. people. Oh, yeah. What's the, what yeah, was the deal with, yeah. with vampire hunters? Vampire hunters are, are part of folklore. So one important detail there is you find them way less in Slavic folklore than you do vampires. And the reason for that is, you know, the stuff you see about vampire hunters in media today, like Dr. Von Helsing using like communion wafer paste and crucifixes, those are all modern inventions. The original vampire hunter wouldn't need like, you know, a gun that shot steaks or they wouldn't even really need to carry garlic or anything like that. And the reason for that is any average peasant could do all that stuff already. You don't need a vampire hunter to do that. The vampire hunter was kind of like a last last resort because in many cases they were supposed actually you could probably say in most cases the vampire hunter was supposed to be half human, half vampire. Was a witch like hunter a in pretty much all cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where you essentially the idea was that a vampire when it came back from the grave, which in original Slavic belief was only men, and then eventually it could be women and stuff. Um, and if a, if a male vampire came back from the grave and sexually assaulted you and you were a woman and got pregnant from it, then the child that's born from that so-called unholy union could be a vampire hunter. They had different names for them, like Dom Pierre Vampirovich was another one. But a special one is what's called the Sabotnik. Um, how do you say Saturday in Slovenian? Sobota. Ah, Sobota. In Polish, it's Sobota. In Russian, it's Subota. Yeah, same, same root. Yeah. Sabot, Saturday, seventh day of the week. So if you were born on Saturday, in certain areas, it was believed you could have vampire hunting powers. You weren't half vampire. You were human. But you had these special vampire hunting powers because that was a sacred day. So it's called the Sabotnik. So if you had a dog born on Saturday, check your doggy birth dates, that dog could be essentially more skilled at finding a vampire in a cemetery. That just said born on a Saturday. That's the one condition you have to – okay. One of the primary ones. There are other things. You know, Does the dog have this certain hair color or is its one eye different or something like that? But if the dog was born on a Saturday or if you were born on a Saturday – Look at your birthday. Uh, you could Tuesday. be a legit I'm a Tuesday baby. Too bad. Ah, Too bad. no. Bummer. Yeah, that sucks. Maybe with the you know, leap year in there or something, you could just <laughs> finagle it. <laughs> By the way, but anyway, vampires yeah. were sexually assaulting people as well, you just said. It wasn't just they woke up in yeah. the middle of the night and, and bit somebody and drank some blood. They were sexually assaulting people, no. and then they believed that yeah, they, a half-vampire baby was born. I mean, how did that go? That sounds completely nuts. Uh, where did it come from? Yeah, and how did they say which baby was a half-vampire then? Did the woman well, claim that she was assaulted like during the night by yeah, a vampire? Yeah, so, or? you know, there's some... There's some debate about that, but the, the basic theory is that if you had a child born outside of wedlock, I mean, today no one really cares. Well, it, depending on where you are in the yeah. world. In like United States, if you have a child born outside of wedlock, if you're not in like a really strict Christian or whatever background, most people probably don't care that much unless, you know, you're, you're viewed as being too young to be able to really raise it. But, you know, if you were like in your 20s and had a baby before being married, probably most people wouldn't care. But back then, that was like big taboo. So, you know, if you had a husband and your husband died and you weren't pregnant and then suddenly, you know, like a couple months after he's dead, like you're pregnant, people would be like, wait a minute. Why do you, uh, your husband died though? So how are you like five months if he died, you know? Or how, how are you three months along if he died four months ago? Oh, so... You know, it, it's kind of harsh, but essentially what, what the argument is, is that in certain cases to make their child more socially acceptable, they'd say, well, you know, 
I didn't want to say anything, but you know, vampire kind of you know attacked me, and you know, here's the baby now. But hey, it hunts vampires, see? So hey, we're good. So it basically gives the child some sort of social relevance now. And in certain cases, there are probably children that were raised to actually believe they were that, you know, where it was like actually a boyfriend or an affair partner or, you know, someone else, you know, and, you know, that was the actual father because, of course, a vampire didn't actually exist. So that's the theory is where that came from. But Sabotnik is a special type where you just be born on that day. You know, you got vampire powers now. Oh, that's um, so basically. cool. But, Your mother just telling yeah. you when you're like 16, you're special because you're a cat vampire and you're a vampire. Your is, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Holy shit. Oh, by the there way, must be an identity crisis if there ever was one. But what did um, the vampire hunter do then? How did he hunt vampires? Oh, oh yeah. So they would traditionally, based on what we know, especially from Balkans region, what we know from the folklore there is the vampire would traditionally hunt with a gun or, or a knife or both. Uh, and the reason for this is that in original belief, only men could be vampires. And... The one of the ways you could become a vampire is if you commit suicide. And even in even in mental health statistics, I used to work on mental health for a little while. Even in mental health statistics today, when men commit suicide, they tend statistically to choose more violent methods than women do. So they'll they'll take a gun or they'll take a knife. So knife and gun were essentially like sort of focused symbols of male suicide so if you had this vampire that the regular so this is why you call upon the vampire hunter you've already done the the crosses or maybe the garlic you maybe you burn the body and there's still vampire attacks so obviously this one's a little more powerful we need someone that can like see into like the supernatural plane of existence to kill this thing now and now you go get them and they would you know so they basically would be using the gun or the knife symbolically like the sort of like it's almost like you know using spiritual power like the witcher or something to kill the vampire supernaturally and to basically erase his existence. So that's that's essentially how they would work. And they would have these sort of like bizarre ritual processes they would do. One of the things we know for example is they would take hawthorn berries or leaves or bark and they would chew on that because hawthorn's another example of Slavic lore, it's known for curative functions. So they would like chew on hawthorn to get more powers in. Hawthorn. And they were supposed mm-hmm. to be able to then that Hi, yeah, it's like a, it's like a small bush or tree that's known for being resistant to plant diseases and stuff like that. Eastern European folklore is finally having a bit of a moment under the sun, mainly due to the success of The Witcher, which we already mentioned, the Netflix fantasy show, which was adapted from a series of fantasy novels. Also a famous video mm-hmm. game developed by a Polish studio, I think it's called Project Red. Yeah, yeah, Witcher 1, 2, 3, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget awesome, who did this. Awesome yeah. RPG games. Do you think yeah, really this good. is just the beginning and that we Slavs are finally getting our due when it comes to pop culture, or is this just a fad? Here's the thing, the same thing happened with the vampire. Whether or not something becomes a big fad and sticks, it depends what people are paying for, basically. A good a good analogy there is if you look at like the current popularity of comic book films, you know, that basically starts with Blade in nineteen ninety-eight, is basically where that starts. That film basically starts that whole industry. So here we are, what is this? How many years later? Will be twenty-five years later? And we're still seeing comic book films. How long will that That's last? That's all we're seeing, unfortunately. As long as we pay yeah. for it. Yeah, as long as we pay for it, they'll keep making them. We'll eventually, you know, fall to popularity. Maybe, maybe not. So it's kind of like it's kind of fickle. It's audience taste, really. If audiences are like, you know, I want some more stuff like The Witcher. What else is there? And someone makes something else. They're like, oh yeah, it, it could happen, you know. But it, it just kind of depends on audience taste and what they decide to consume, or what they think they should at least. I better watch this. Everyone else is, you know, something like that. I did a little bit of digging, hashtag investigative journalist here, and quickly discovered that you teach an extremely popular university course on Dracula and vampires, which means you've devoted a hefty portion of your life to this piece of Eastern European 
folklore. When did this dark romance begin? Ah, this dark romance. I could ask that a lot, actually. You know, as a kid, um, by coincidence, I wish I had it on hand here, but I actually do have a photograph of me when I was, it was my sixth birthday party and I wanted a Halloween themed birthday party and I dressed as Dracula for that. Now, the reason I did that is because I had the costume from that Halloween because I was, I was born in November. But at any rate, you now people sometimes see that picture. They're like, well, obviously as a kid, you were like, you were vampire obsessed. I wasn't, you know, I just like anybody else in America, I'm just surrounded by vampire images just in various ways of media, chicken McNugget toys, movies, comic books, TV shows. It's just, you know, something I knew about. But um, for me in particular, the house I grew up in, my parents' home, my birth home – well, actually, not my birth home, technically. I, we, we, they moved into that home after I was born. But the home where I grew, spent most of my childhood and stuff in until you know, I got married, basically, was originally built in 1823. And it came with all these stories about ghosts, that there is this woman whose husband died in World War – and then Civil War. And she, she, she committed suicide by starving herself in the living room. And you'll see her wandering the house in her, in her wedding dress. And, you know, so – I would say that's part of the reason why, as a kid, I always had this interest in like ghosts and ghost stories and horror. I can tell you another turning point too, because you mentioned that like Dracula 1992 with the stabbing of the cross was a turning point for you. A big turning point for me in interest in horror and creepy things was the 1982 film The Thing, which my father right. was at 1983. Whenever that yeah. came out, yeah, my father had me sat me down and had me watch it on television. I think, as far as I remember, when I was like six, Whoa. that was probably not a good idea. But man, was it was it definitely something memorable? <laughs> this, you, have you seen the movie? Of course, probably. Yeah, that's Carpenter, right? Yeah, like yeah, you know, yeah. like near the start, whenever like it's it's in the dogs there, and it yeah, starts yeah, to like yeah. have these tentacles. Scary. Things. It's like I was like, ah. As a kid, that was a big influence on me getting into like creepy stuff. The thing was like I still consider that to my to this day to be my favorite film in history. Uh, is that that film in particular? <laughs> I could watch that every day. It's such a perfect movie. But any rate, yeah. So these are various things like that just had me have a natural interest in like ghosts and things. And as a kid, like you know, from like third to fifth grade, I was bullied quite a bit. So you know, I got more interested in like comic books and music and things. So I just kind of like you know did my own thing and just had an interest in this stuff. And then. You know, sometimes I have students that ask me, like, how'd you get where you are? You know, you like you seem like you're very successful in what you do, you know, teaching class on vampires and other stuff. And I always say the same thing. It's just like when I was younger, I, I just had a bunch of experiences. I did a lot of things. Sometimes I was good at them. Sometimes I wasn't. But it didn't matter if I was good or not. It just, you know, now I'd say I'm a pretty interesting person that has a lot of experiences. And all those experiences came together and to this course, you know, and other things, too. But you know what I mean? basically. So I was never like a vampire freak. I just knew about them. And now, of course, now I know a lot about vampires because I kind of have to. <laughs> yeah. It's only a matter of time before a Hollywood studio comes knocking and uh, picks your brain. Well, yeah, no, this is a funny story. I've actually been contacted by a number of casting producers to be on TV shows. And the, the closest I got, I forget who the guy was, but they were doing a casting call for a host for a show that was going to be on uh, the Travel Channel. That show eventually became, I think it's called Legends of the Lost. And the, the person I lost out to who became the host of that show was Megan Fox. So if you look up this show, the show was called something like Legends of the Lost. It only lasted one season because, you know, Megan Fox is an actress and not a, like an expert on like mystery or anything. So, you know, they decided to get, because whenever I had the interview, I told them, I'm like, now listen, I'm not going to be a host of the show if you're going to have me talk about a bunch of, sorry, bullshit. Like, I'll talk about like facts because honestly, if you take the approach of facts, I think people will find it a lot more interesting to learn about like actual folklore than they would, you know, did aliens 
build this pyramid? Oh, no. like ancient Why aliens. Actually... <laughs> yeah, you know. So, and I guess that's the direction they wanted to go. So they got Megan Fox, you know, well, who was a now pretty well-known actor. After they so. see this interview, they'll come around and come knocking again. Maybe, yeah. Maybe this will finally be the uh, the, the, the successful candidate. The last question. <laughs> I know you have to go really soon. It's really quick. The title of this podcast is Euro Trash. So I have to ask you something trashy at the end. I have to be honest. It's a rather personal question. During the oh. Twilight era... Were you Team Edward or Team Jacob, and why? Uh, honestly, I wasn't Team anything. My wife was really into the books. I bought her all the books. She liked the books. We we watched the movies together, you know. So those were some dates there and stuff like that. But I, I you know, I watched it as a vampire scholar, basically just interested in where it was going and why it got so popular and stuff like that. But I mean, honestly, I think my favorite character in the whole film was that one like Russian vampire dude with the pale white hair. I just liked his character. <laughs> I don't even remember what his name was, but like at the <laughs> final battle scene when he's running, he's like all smiling and all excited to fight the vampires. I'm like, I don't know why I like that guy. <laughs> Other than that, you know, I could care less about the movie. Basically. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Professor Stepanik, where can people find your work? Do you have any online courses, social media, anything of the sort? Uh, well, the Dracula course in the summer, and, and I, I guess it could be taken online because I do do digital, but you have to enroll through UVA. Uh, my textbooks are all digital, so you technically can buy them, but you know they're basically built from my different courses. So I got a Russian folklore textbook, like you mentioned earlier, and film textbook, um, which I think I think they're great, and they're very resource. They've got lots of you know interesting resources and history and stuff in there, and some new stuff that I've uncovered over the years. But you know, um, in terms of like actual publications, I, I have something that was recently published for an archive. But you know, since it's an archival book, it will cost you like five hundred nineteen dollars to buy it if you actually want that book. But the textbooks, which are digital, you know, that's typical for archival stuff. The textbooks, which are digital, are like you know, I fifty five bucks, seventy five bucks, or something. They're pretty reasonable for as big as they are. But but other than that, you know, I, I do have a video on Ted Ed about Dracula. It's not me talking; it's a different voice actor, but I, I wrote it. You know, it's got couple million views which i think is kind of cool i also did a series of videos about the novel dracula for course hero it's basically like a interactive study guide kind of thing on youtube about novel dracula i've done i wasn't too happy with the way i, I looked in there and like my suit and stuff but that's just a you know superficial thing um so i've done stuff like that you know you can find little articles on stuff i've done online and some other interviews and awesome. things but other than that you know that's that's about it thank you so much professor stepanik this was fascinating i hope yeah. we, we get thank to do you. it again appreciate it thank you so much yeah thank you all right, thank you to my lovely patrons, Taichi, Carmen, and Veronica. Thank you for your support. You're amazing. If you want to support Eurotrash too, you can do that. Just go to Patreon and find me there. All right, thanks again. <laughs>